Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 127. As you know, we are going through the Psalms this summer, and we really are trying to unpack how the Psalms can equip us, inform us, grow us in our prayer lives, in our intimacy with the Father. Last week, Doug did a masterful job with Psalm 119, the longest psalm, and and really just showing us, walking us through what it looks like to meditate and to chew on the Psalms and to personalize them and to understand them. This week, we will look at Psalm 127. Uh, My last time I preached, we looked at Psalm 126. Uh, Don't worry, we're not doing 128 next time. I'm going to break it up a little bit. But these are all part of the Songs of Ascent. And what what we're seeing is a pilgrimage. In the first 120 to 126, those Psalms dealt with the pilgrims coming out of warfare, out of enemies. And now they're coming into the presence of the Lord. And so 127 is somewhat of a turning point. Um, But it's also a very popular psalm, and I think you'll recognize it as we dig into it. So let's look now at Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the Psalms, we praise you for this passage, and we ask that your Holy Spirit, that you would be present with us, that you would open our eyes, help us to not be vain, help us to not get caught up in repetition, but to actually see freshly the meaning in your word, that it would change us, making us more like your son, Jesus. Amen. I heard a story years ago of a Christian college who wanted to build and raise the funds to build a library, and they decided to have their architecture program design the library, and they designed the library for them, and it was beautiful, and it was built according to the funds that were raised. The one problem was they had not taken into account the weight of the books, and so it became a useless library. Well, being a good pastor, I decided to research that story, and it turns out it may not be true. It may be apocryphal. It may have been one of those folklore stories. Why would I possibly open up with a false illustration? It was too good to pass up. But actually, I think it's for this reason. Because why would we pass that story along? It turns out the people who pass it along usually refer to their alma mater. Like, can you believe? And Mostly OSU, because OU people would never, uh, just joking, little joke. The reality is we pass that story along because I think everyone in this room can easily imagine being on a team planning something really important, spending countless hours, and missing the main point. It's for books. It's for the weight of these books. Okay, so Psalm 127. Solomon is telling us, look, everything you do is for the Lord. And, and most of the time we would read this and say, world, unbelieving world, you need to listen to this. And that is true. Indeed, the unbelieving world needs to hear these words. But I think Solomon is talking to the church. Christians, we need to hear this, that we are prone to go about things vainly, thinking we're doing them for the Lord when we're not. 
thinking we have the design, his ideas in mind when often we are simply going after our own ideas, our own affections, our own desires. So my hope that we'll see in this passage is God gives Christians peace when we join him in his purposes. God gives us peace and fulfillment, if you want to add another word, when, he, when we join him in his purposes. That's the goal. So that's what we're going to look at. And then the first thing I want to do is just simply look at God is doing all the doing. Now, that's a weird point. This is, I'm, I'm just, just, I hear you. Okay. God is doing all the doing. Okay. What makes this interesting is God, the psalm doesn't say, take the plans from God and then go build the house. Right? It says God's doing the building. Right? So really what we want to understand is what does it mean to ha- follow this principle? What would it look like for a Christian to join into the purposes of God with all of our life. The three elements of this, this is going to keep happening, the little, the little styrofoam. We're going to order a new one. Not, what's it, uh, foam rubber. What's that called? That's, we're going to order a new one. Bear with me. I'm sure what I just did was more painful than the noise you'll hear all sermon. The three areas it covers are your home, right, security, and your family. These are kind of like the three major areas. And, and the psalmist is saying all three of these need to be under the guise of God's leading, under his authorship, and for his purposes. And, and I want to start with trying to, as we figure out how, what would that even look like, I'm going to start with the second one. So we are in the first verse, and right off the bat we have these two places where we are told to seek God. The second one is watching over the city, security. It says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And I'm starting there because I think that one's easier to grasp. I don't care how perfectly trained a watchman is, how alert they are, how well armored they are. If the enemy is far more talented, far more large, has more ammunition, if it's like one of those movies where Godzilla is walking down the street, the police are just yelling and running, they have no help. So you can understand in that setting, it's completely up to God, right? God is the one who will protect you because he's the one who's got sovereignty over the enemy. It's actually a comfort. But I want to now come back to the first one. That's a little bit harder. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That's hard to, I mean, do you buy into that? I mean, people can go lay a foundation, build a house, and say, there it is. I didn't pray one time, and there's a house. Yet, and we see that in the passage too. In verse 2, it says, eating the bread of anxious toil revealing that even the anxious toil does lead to bread. Okay? But there's a lot more going on in the idea of building a house. For one, uh, you could go into all the reasons you build a home, what you put into it, but for the Hebrew mind, a house was far more than just the structure. It was the household. It was the people. It was the livelihood that went into it. It was the longevity. That's why security is there. They really join. And then more than that... Solomon is writing this psalm. And Solomon built the house of God. And so what's amazing about how Solomon went about building the temple was that God, David wanted to build the temple, but God said, no, your son's going to build the temple, Solomon. And then God provided everything. In some ways, when you read how it went down, Solomon had to do very, very, very little. He simply had to go with God's will. And that is the principle here I want to get across is When God's purposes are followed, 
it's going to feel a lot more like, not, I don't want to say we're letting go, but we're letting him have control. We're letting him be sovereign. We're trusting in his purposes. We're allowing him to lead the way. So that's the idea behind, I think, this entire psalm, is are you willing to lay down your own plans and get in with God's purposes in life? That's the big question. So point number two is why we don't do that. Why do we not do that? What is wrong with us that we don't just say, God, I'm a Christian, I believe, take over. I will just trust, and life will go that direction. And the answer there is found in verse 2, of course. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Vanity, right? Look at verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so what we're seeing is that everything we do in life has a motive or a purpose behind it, right? That's one of those things that you can test um, and, and kind of see why are you doing the things you do. And are you doing them for the Lord, for His glory? Are you seeking His way? What, what is vanity? When we, do, when we are caught up in vanity, we, we're caught up in the wrong reason, the wrong purpose. Think about... Um, like a person who stares, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, right? It's, I'm caught up in my looks. It's not just, hey, there's a mirror, and I want to make sure I don't have food in my teeth and my hair is coiffed properly, but that I'm actually so caught up in my looks that I, that's all I want to do is just stare at the mirror. We've even made furniture called a vanity. It's like, when did that happen? When did someone think, here's a good idea. Um, there's my pride couch, and there's my vanity. But nonetheless, vanity is, here would be an example in my opinion, vanity is when you do it for the wrong reason. I was watching a gymnastics competition the other day, and I'm, I'm gonna, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm picking on the girls. I'm really not meaning to. But, you know, a girl does her amazing gymnastics routine and gets off, and there's a line of girls there to hug her. And they, ha and, okay, you're the camera. Here's the person. I'm the first girl in line, and it's this huge smile. And then right here, it's, and then off. And the next person, no smile. And why? Why would you smile like this? And then the second your face passed by them, it's just kind of like, I did, because they're so caught up in, that it's not they don't like the girl. Maybe they don't. Dang it, she did really good. They're caught up in, I've got a routine I'm about to do, and, and, and just all the other stuff about me. And this is just a formality. But a coach or a parent would keep that smile on their face. So vanity is really this, I'm doing what seems to be a good thing, but for the wrong reason. Anxious, toil, right? Why do we get caught up in this? Um, I think what makes this psalm even more astounding, that it's written by Solomon, is he really, in a way, failed at each of these three things. Solomon built the temple in seven years, but he spent 13 on his own home. You could argue, well, you know, maybe that's just because his was, I don't know. You could argue that. Um, Solomon expanded the walls of the Israel empire to its greatest size, however you want to say that. But his actual policies, followed by his son, led to the division of the kingdom and later the captivity that came. And then, of course, when you think about family, the last three verses, Solomon didn't have, like, one wife. He had hundreds of wives and concubines and children. He, he failed at each of these. 
And so the warning for us is we can nod, we can sit here and go, mm-hmm. I saw Phil Robertson on, on Facebook, I don't know why, go into some, you know, Phil Robertson, Duck Dynasty, and he goes in and he gives this great speech about how we have to follow God or the, or the nation's going, you know, the way it's going. And I, I actually, it's like, he's right. That would be, that'd be good for the sermon. And I thought, he's right, that would be good for the sermon. But I think the problem is, especially even when you look at the Bible, often it's the Christians or the religious people who are making the biggest mistakes. So yes, the world needs to follow God, but is the church, are we really going to the Lord and saying, I want to serve you with my life? Or are we caught up in vanity? Let's just go around and raise our hands. Okay, here's a good test of vanity. How is your prayer life? If you believe these words, why would you not pray 24 hours a day? If I believe God is doing everything sovereignly in my life, has my good in mind, why would I ever not just be praying, as Paul said, without ceasing? Because functionally, I believe that it's kind of up to me. And I had my quiet time, and it ended here. Maybe three years ago, maybe this morning, but it ended, and now it's up to me. That's vanity, isn't it? How about Scripture? Do I like to read the Bible? Well, I do if I'm part of a group where that gets me accolades, vanity. But what if I'm by myself, just am I being nourished by it? If God is the one who builds, if God is the one that watches, if God's the one that provides, why am I not reading His Scripture for sustenance in life? As if that's my only diet. Because I'm vain. Why am I vain? Because I live for your approval. We live for each other's approval. See, we, 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 act, we say God gives me his approval, and we kind of nod to that. But what we really want is the jury of our peers to really, really like us. Or at least to not get in our way. So how do we do this? How do we shift? Third point. There's a second part of this passage. I don't know. I'm going to read the whole thing again so you'll see how different it sounds. Here are the first ones we've covered. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stay awake, stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For He, God, gives His beloved, you, sleep. Then all of a sudden, in verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Some pe- this is so different sounding, especially in the English, that there are some commentators who, I mean not like liberal weird Conservatives that thought, oh, this is two separate psalms that someone stuck together. I don't agree with that, and most, most commentators don't agree with that because a couple reasons. One, the word for builder in the Hebrew is bonim, and the word for sons, verse 3 says behold, it should say, or it can also say, sons are a heritage of the Lord, is banim. And, and so there's a poetic similarity that we miss sometimes in the English translation, which is fine. But that's why we can trust the Scriptures and trust they belong together. But there's even the theme together, the household. Again, when they're building this house, it's not this one structure, 
But it's, this, it's a heritage. It's a family. It's beautiful, right? But there's something else. If you just were sitting there on your couch, the pride couch, and you're reading your, like, get over, get over to the grace couch and start reading Psalm 127, you're going to ask some questions. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. And then look at verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. There's a purpose. There's something more than just, I have this beautiful photo, and there are my 22 kids, and there are 38 kids each, and now we have this huge, vast family, and I can sit here and tell you all their occupations. That's, that's awesome. That's beautiful. Go for that. But there's something more going on. It, it's purpose. It's, look what these children are doing. They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior. When Emily and I were in Japan, uh, our team leader, there were, three, there were quite a few families on this team, uh, MTW team. Dan Iverson had, is it eight children at the time? Still eight children. And he would say, he would quote this verse, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And then he would say this, and he's awesome. He would say, look, there, the percentage of Christians in Japan is like .00 something, right? I have eight kids that are covenant children. If they grow up to know Jesus, think about what we're doing to that ratio of Christians in Japan. And if they go out and witness and share the gospel in their schools and have their children, he was sort of having fun, but he really believed it's actually a missionary strategy. Amen. Now, that's not the point of this passage, but it is interesting that, okay, there's a purpose behind the children right, of, of a man, right? There's something they're doing. They're sharing the gospel. They're, there's effectiveness in it. And then I read the end. Listen to what it says. The man who has this quiver, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The gate of the city was a place for trial. It was a place for judgment. So the enemy is bringing a judgment against you. And according to what this is saying, somehow the usefulness of these godly children is maybe they're witnesses. Maybe they're there to provide a witness. Like this, is, this man is actually of God, right? They're there to protect you. Okay, hold on to that thought. And then I want to back up to Genesis 11. One of the commentators that I recommend is Kidner on the Psalms. And he says, this psalm really looks a lot like Genesis 11. The first half of Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel, right? Here is, are all these nations building in vain, removing God from their life, creating this structure. And then all of a sudden it transitions after the disaster and, and the changing of tongues and all that to the beginning of a family, Tehran, who had Abram, who comes to out of, the, out of the land of Ur and into the promised land area, and he's barren. And God promises him a seed. Okay? Now think about that for a minute. He tells Abraham, you're going to have this huge family. Right? And, and from that family, blessings on all nations. Bottom half of this psalm. Top half, vanity. Seeking this building for your own vanity. So here's Abraham now with the seed who is Jesus, right? Is it, and, and this gate, this idea of being at a gate, there you are, someone's attacking you, the enemy. Who do you want to come to your defense? Imagine the scene, 
you, you've woken up. Have you ever you've seen these movies? I won't name any because some of them are not. But you wake up and you think someone's trying to tell you you've committed. You don't know, did they really commit the crime? There's some blood and they were maybe passed out what happened. Uh, so they go to, you know, you don't know, did they really do it or not? And you're, you're that person. Imagine with me. And you're sitting in the jail with the police officers. And they're both wanting to get to, they want to get to the bottom of things. But they're insinuating you did this, right? Who do you want to come to your defense? Well, in walks your lawyer, and it's Jesus. And he says this to you. I've got some kind of good news and bad news. Here's the bad news. You did it. You did the crime. Bad news, right? Now, you have to sit in that for a minute. So I'm going to go plea for you. I'm going to go do a plea bargain. We'll see what we can get. And then he goes to the judge, and he tells the judge, Indeed, my client did what you said he did, enemy, enemy says. You don't know the half of it. There's sins before that that he did. And guess what? There's sins in the future that you have no idea about. But I'm covering them all. I'm covering them all with my blood. I'm adopting this person. I'm bringing this person to my kingdom. And we are leaving the courtroom right now, paid in full. That's the kind of son you want. That's the kind of son Jesus is. And you think, that's a stretch. Where is that in the Bible? Um, Think of Philippians 4, uh, where Paul says, Do not be anxious in anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which guards your heart and your mind, uh, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So is Christ Jesus your guardian in the trial? Do you, do you see the trial here in this? And do you see also in verse 2 the anxious toil that we are living like we're on trial all the time? One of the things that um, I've been reading this week is I'm preaching from 1 Corinthians. Doug actually helped me think of a great title for the series. He won't take credit for it, but it's good. 1 Corinthians is a book written to a messy congregation. So Doug came up with the title. I hope you don't mind me. A messy congregation we're a messy congregation. We are messy. We are broken. We need Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is explaining that these people think they're following God, but what they're doing is they're following people. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Peter. Or that's Cephas. Whomever. One of them says, I follow Jesus. I'm like, isn't that the right one? but apparently they were doing it in opposition of the other. So there's opposition, there's pride. And Paul says this. I was reading this week Tim Keller, and I highly recommend his little booklet, uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, based on 1 Corinthians, the end of 3 and the beginning of 4. And in that book, Keller is talking about the courtroom and the trial that we're on. And And he quotes this part of Paul, although I'm backing up a little bit more. Listen to what Paul says. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So the the, the people he's writing to think they've figured things out, even though it's in opposition to God. And it looked godly to them. Well, after all, Paul's pretty good, so I don't listen to Peter. What looks so wise was really ridiculous. Paul could have said, you're ignoring the apostle Peter. How smart is that? But he doesn't. So in verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, 
The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Again, vanity. And this is a similar, same description of vanity. I know what's good for me. I know what I need. I know what's truth. But what's the cause of that? Listen to what Paul goes on to say. Let no one boast in men. All things are yours. All things are yours. I love that. It's, he's like calling their bluff. You, it's that goodwill hunting scene. It's, that, it's not your fault, you know, that scene. It's, it's, Paul's looking at them and going, stop it. You're so angry because you are trying to cling to something that can't be yours. And you're ignoring the Jesus who is yours. All things are yours, he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Jesus Christ has walked into the trial and he's looked at the judge and he he looks at you and says, you are mine, I'm his, and we are out of here. This trial is over. You have peace. You can sleep. You can rise. You can serve. And you can do it for the Lord. So how do we practically do this? There's a story about George Mueller and his prayer life who was one of the major prayerers of of the last several hundred years. And it was said that he finally had to die to what George Mueller thought of other people, like what they think of him. He had to finally get over that. But he also had to die to what he thought of himself. Right? Those are two things we have to die to. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing, am I willing to so trust Jesus that I stop living in the courtroom worried about what the enemy thinks of me and what my own flesh is trying to tell me is true of me? Listen to Paul. I love this line. It sounds arrogant, but it's not. Verse, four, uh, verse 3 of chapter 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. That's a man who gets the gospel. What is he saying? That I just don't care anymore? No. He's saying Jesus Christ is the only one who gets to judge me. My identity is on Christ alone. So, whether you say you follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas or whatever you're saying, or if my own conscience is trying to tell me I'm broken and I'm sinful and not worthy of anything, both of which lead to vanity, to anxious toil, to a life fixed on self, the Gospel frees you from that. Jesus says, I have come in and I have freed you from that so that now the the lineage of blessing is Jesus. So for those of you that can't have children, how does this psalm play out? What do you think? It is talking about spiritual children too, right? You can now love others and disciple others. Who do you want to come to your defense? Does it matter whether they're biological children or if they're children you've been discipling? What you want is Jesus to come to your defense. And you want that gospel to radiate throughout the church, throughout people you're loving and discipling and caring for. That the idea is not to build your household but the household of God in Christ. So can we lay down our weapons that vanity leads to and love each other? Can Christ free us to do that? Only if we're willing to die to what we think of ourselves and to what others think of ourselves and begin to live to what is true in Christ. 
Will you boast in Christ? Will that be your identity? Let us pray. Lord, you call us to give our life over to you. That we might join you in your purposes. And yet, we're very reluctant. We're afraid. Sometimes we're afraid we're going to unroll the plans to the house you want us to build and it's going to be too small. People won't like it. It may be in a state or a city or a country we don't want to live in. Lord, we're afraid to look at the plans for our life. We want a big family. You may call us to be barren. Lord, we may have wanted one kid and you give us 16. But we trust you, Lord. We trust you because you are sovereign and you are good and you have rescued us and you have redeemed us and you've placed your Holy Spirit in us. We are your children. We are now the children of your heritage. And Lord, I pray that we would rest in the gospel. Only by your grace is this possible. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.